go today is sunday march 6 2016 and this is episode 152 of the defensive security podcast my name is jerry bell and joining me tonight as always is mr andrew callett hello mr bell how's your sunday going it is going pretty good how are you i'm doing pretty good i uh i'm sad that tomorrow's monday but otherwise you know well you know we got to get through monday to get back to friday again (laughs) that's true you speak true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just before we get started, the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. And uh, and before we do get started tonight, I, I did want to make another shout out to Hack in the Box Amsterdam, which is happening uh, May 23rd through 27th of this year in uh, Amsterdam of all places. Fancy that being... Lovely Amsterdam. scenic historic Amsterdam. Uh, exactly. That's right. Mm-hmm. And underwater. Well, below below sea level, how about let's see. I mean, now you now you're gonna make people think they have to hold their breath to go to the conference. Way to mislead everybody. <laughs> it's not underwater. It's not underwater. It's whatever. I mean, unless you consider the water as the you know, vapor content in the air above the city. Then it we're all underwater then. That's true. So anyway, uh the, as I said, the the uh conference is being held the 23rd to the 27th of may you can uh you you can find a link to the website to buy tickets in our show notes and if you mention defensive security as the uh, coupon code you'll get 10 percent off so that's pretty good there are uh, the, the agenda is posted and I'll, I'll tell you it looks really really quite good so if you are in the area i highly recommend you go one of these years we will have to go Absolutely. But not this year. Not this year. <clears throat> it is uh it's a little hard to you know, it's hard to get time off and and uh you know, fit it in the budget to get out there. But anyway, um enough about that. Moving on to our stories. Our first story tonight comes from the uh the Intel Security Advanced Threat Research Team. And the title is Targeted ransomware no longer a future threat. And, and so, just just a warning: this is actually a link to a PDF file, so don't freak out. I mean, maybe freak out a little, but yeah, just, it is a little interesting that uh, it is. Security researchers do choose PDFs as. A, I mean, I guess it's better than like Shockwave or SWF, right? But um, I don't know. I think a lot of that's driven by marketing, folks. I suppose. You know. Yeah. For whatever reason. Anyway, um, the uh, the deal here is this is this kind of uh, goes along with something we've been talking about for the last couple of episodes, and that is uh, ransomware that's really targeted more at an organization than at an individual. And so this uh, this PDF actually describes a decomposition and analysis of a piece of malware or uh, sorry a piece of ransomware and the attack techniques used by a group against a, a vic- an unnamed victim 
And there's lots of details in here, but basically the takeaways are that, number one, it's not very clear what the initial point of intrusion was. They, they don't actually discuss that. Number two, the, um, they actually do a pretty interesting analysis, which shows that the attacker apparently was manually interacting with this and, and doing a, a somewhat manual installation. So this wasn't like one big scripted uh, thing, partially scripted. But basically, uh, the attacker ran an Active Directory tool to dump members of the domain. They ran a, a, they ran a script, just basically a, a, a shell script, to identify systems that the uh, the system they had they were operating from internally had connectivity to. So basically, they were performing a ping test. And uh, once they did that, they uh, they started copying. Uh, well, first off, they generated a public key, a public and private key pair, uh, which obviously the private key was up in the cloud. And uh, and then they copied the public key and the um, actual cryptoware to all of the uh, systems that this compromised host they were operating from had access to. And they, they basically were just using, uh, you know, UNC, the, the C dollar, our lovely favorite C dollar share, and, uh, and, and copying the, uh, like I said, the public key and the malware to all of those hosts. And then they used PS exec. Uh, our our friend PS Exec uh, to actually launch the the ransomware on each of those hosts. So you know one of the things they actually don't mention it in here. Uh, it, it, down at the very bottom of the article, they talk about some mitigations, which just has the normal patch your system in a timely manner and you know use antivirus and that sort of thing. Well, don't uh, forget the robust backup or recovery strategy. Well, uh, I mean, I can. Agree with that, right? Um, but you know, a lot of a lot of your network tools these days, like uh, I, network IPSs and, and whatnot, have the ability to detect and block PS exec traffic. And and I do know that PS exec is a commonly used thing in in some environments. Uh, however, there there is probably an opportunity to limit where it's coming from. You know, and so. You know, you probably shouldn't be seeing PS exec traffic coming from your receptionist's computer. I'm just saying. It's true. I mean, unless she's, you know, kind of wearing two hats, receptionist slash IT admin. Yeah. yeah. But in general, yes, you should be able to whitelist and know where the, those sort of commands are coming from and anything else should be suspicious. Right. But, um, you know, I, I, I think the, uh, the, the takeaways, this is just another indication of the, uh, you know, like so well called the militarization of ransomware. It's true. I, I did pick up something interesting, too, in the story that I wanted to bring up, which was, oh, I don't know, probably three quarters of the way through, they were talking about <clears throat> the actual, uh, I guess, communication to the victim of how to get their files back. And in essence, it sent them to a WordPress site that was maintained by the bad guys, So, uh, which was followsex7.wordpress.com. So that was the note on the desktop to go to go to that website. And if they follow it, they'll eventually get information about how to pay the 1.5 Bitcoin and all that jazz. Now, here's the interesting thing. That uh, WordPress site got shut down. 
uh, by WordPress, basically. And they moved to another one. But that kind of brings up an interesting ethical question to me, which is, without getting into the debate of whether you should or should not be paying for getting your ransom files back, if you choose to, this particular layout, once that site shut down, depending on the timing of the compromise and such, you just lost your opportunity to buy back your files if you really wanted to, based on WordPress or somebody else making that determination, which is kind of an interesting problem. Yeah. We, we saw this back a couple of years ago when this was when ransomware was primarily a consumer type problem. There, there were a lot of, of uh, command and control shutdowns. And, and at the time, I remember reading a lot of uh, a lot of consternation about leaving the victims kind of high and dry. Right. And, and now it's it, this is a bit different thing because we're actually seeing, I would say, you know, you just have to read the the info infosec news and you'll see on a almost daily basis now some government entity or you know hospital whatever paying the ransom right i mean this is becoming a common thing and if you suddenly take away that opportunity <laughs> i think you know it's not it's not great right yeah, it's it, there's no good option at this point. But I'm just bringing it up that it's an interesting ethical dilemma of whether or not you take that site down, given the circumstance involved of a strongly encrypted uh, file that there's no other way to recover it. Maybe you choose to, to pay, and here you've got a third party sort of breaking that communication chain. Now, in some ways, you could say this is a bad design by the bad guys to have it be dependent upon a specific site that could be easily disabled but you know and not everybody does this a lot of them do it over email or do it just by drop a bitcoin uh drop to a bitcoin wallet address that kind of stuff that isn't dependent on this sort of centralized blog site but anyway i just thought it was interesting of, of from an ethical dilemma standpoint of what what would you do kind of thing if you were you know the wordpress guys yeah it's um i mean obviously it's it's a simple decision for them right because Mm-hmm. It's it's a malicious actor operating in their environment. It, it gets more complicated if you're a, if you're the party that's that's been hosed. And and by the way, I, I I don't have a link to it right now, but I, I in preparation for this this show, I did read a uh, I think it was the city of um, Melrose. I don't remember exactly where that's at, but uh, the the police department, one of the one of their detectives got crypto lockered and it, apparently it didn't impact their their infrastructure it really just crypto lockered this this detective's uh, laptop and they did have backups of uh, um, of some things but apparently there were a lot of like pictures and uh, images that were used or going to be used in upcoming uh, ca- criminal cases that they didn't have backups for and so the the um, it was just kind of a humorous story about the uh, one of the detectives talking about the police chief, he and the police chief going to uh, meet a Bitcoin um, broker at the Panera Bread to to buy to buy a, a Bitcoin for you know five hundred bucks or whatever to, to recover this guy's uh, this guy's file. So uh, I I really think this is becoming just a an unfortunately common thing and. I would dare say one of the more pressing things as defenders, we've got to make sure we we have a a good game plan, either you know both to, to defend and then to respond to. Yeah, agreed. 
Uh, and once again, this is one of those things of having a plan ahead of time is going to put you in a far better position and uh, than trying to come up with a plan after it happened. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of like uh, with DDoS and other things, the, the, the stigma associated with getting crypto lacquered is, is probably gone down quite a lot because there's just been so many. Yeah, we've become a little desensitized to it as a, you know, we're not blaming the victim as much as we probably used to. Right. Exactly. Uh, let's see. So our, our next story, and this was um, just an interesting little flap that happened over the the past week with uh, one password, and and so uh, um, actually, and it's interesting because this is the second time this this happened on this particular bug. But there was a, a security researcher whose blog we can't actually find right now. I'm not exactly sure if it was taken down or, or what. But uh, effectively, the story, uh, and this is going based on recollection, but the story was this person was poking around on his Mac and looking at what services he had listening uh, on you know, on the network. And he noticed that there were some uh, some listeners on his bound to his local you know, loopback interface. And he didn't recognize what they were. He didn't think there was anything that should have been there. So he started... Uh, TCP dump session, you know, just looking to see what was there. And by the way, all good. We like this. This yeah. is how you should. Yeah, it's yeah. all good research. Yeah. And lo and behold, at some point, while he's using his computer, he sees unencrypted passwords uh, going, you know, flowing through his loopback interface. And and what it turns out is that uh, this person was using one password, the password manager, one password. And um, uh, effectively, the traffic he was seeing was a call from the browser plugin to the uh, you know the one password application to request the password and and then resp you know respond back so that the uh, the browser could autofill the username and password and uh, and that kind of lit a firestorm of indeed. Uh, of activity and uh and, and consternation and um the twitters were a buzzer yeah yeah and um and, and interestingly this is like i said this I, I do remember this coming up um almost a year ago and uh in fact i think it was in june of last year there we, we will put a, a a response from uh one password but basically one password's perspective is that um you know, if if you want this to work like uh, you know, like that, where where you have the ability to uh, feed in passwords into your your browser forms, you effectively have no real choice. You know, you get, they can do some obfuscation, but it's just obfuscation. There apparently isn't really any provisions to do any kind of a you know actual crypto between the one password application and the browser without some really complicated setup that would you know be be destroyed every time there was a uh, some kind of an update with the browser or what have you and uh, and and so I, th I think they recognize that there's a problem um, but you know the the one thing that that kind of came up uh, quite often is that you know in order to exploit this vulnerability you you basically an attacker would effectively have to be you know, a, a local administrator or root on your system, and at which point, you know, the the opportunities for them to get to get your passwords are 
numerous, you know, right. <laughs> including keyloggers and you know lots of other opportunities. So probably not the the, the most pressing thing to worry about. But you know, no, I I really felt this was much ado about nothing personally. And so here is kind of my take, and and, and you definitely hit on some of the points I would. I was going to say as well, but the researcher guy found something interesting and he kind of threw it out there to the world. And, and I think one password did a pretty decent job of saying, yeah, we know about this. This is a design choice and here's the trade-offs involved and why. Uh, but that often doesn't get as much press as the initial splashy display of, Oh my God, there's clear passwords flowing around. But you said it at, at one, at some point you've got to trust something. And, and if you're punching in passwords manually, and that box is already compromised. The same level of access is there to capture those passwords as you type them in. Unless you're using pure two-factor or some sort of certificate authentication, if you're using static passwords of any variety, they're going to get captured. If your box is compromised, whether it's being fed by you personally or being fed by some sort of browser plugin or third-party application, because it has to interact, it has to basically fake it is a user. It has to type it in, in essence. Uh, we don't have API calls to, you know, do end-to-end -end encryption on this sort of stuff. And even if we did, it still would be in memory. It's still, look, if your box is owned, your box is owned. So all that being said, the advantages and the security advantages of using something like a 1Password or other password manager, I think far outweigh the risks, far outweigh. Are there risks involved? Absolutely. Uh, you know, could you have all of your passwords compromised at once if somebody were to, you know, break your master password or something like that? Absolutely. However, having random, unique passwords and managed centrally for all of your sites is a far bigger risk reduction and net gain in risk reduction than the risk increase of using something like a password manager. Um, I will be honest, I don't use 1Password. I use a competitor, but I feel the same way about 1Password uh, as I do the one I use. Uh, it just happened to be the one I started using. I'm too lazy to switch. But uh, and, and we do have some friends of the show who, who happen to work for 1Password, but that's not influencing my opinion. I, I, I honestly believe that a lot more people could and should be using password managers, and then they could easily get away from reusing the same password in every site. Uh, amongst other reasons. So anyway, I I get that this guy thought he stumbled onto something, and and it, it, he wasn't the first, by the way. And I'm not blaming him. I mean, it's good that people are looking and researching, but I really think the press coverage of this was uh, much ado about nothing, as I said before, and also somewhat one-sided and uninformed. And I I did want to kind of point to the you know very factually and technically interesting if you will rebuttal or explanation coming for one password and you know just remind folks that at the end of the day the same and worse abilities exist if, if somebody can can monitor your local loopback yeah exactly I, the, the the reason i thought it was worth uh, bringing up is that you know we, we in security we tend to fall into this uh, trap of thinking things are, are bad, you know, or, or, or substandard. And I, I thought it worth having this, the discussion because I think there's still a tremendous amount of value as you, just as you just mentioned, right. In password managers that far outweigh the downside. I mean, all this stuff is a, is a trade-off. Yes. Two-factor authentication would be a much better way to go. However, in, in many cases for, 
you know, either the sites you use don't support it or for many other reasons, a password manager just makes a lot more sense. So, yeah. um, you know, if, feel fl- feel free to flame us and, you know, tell us how you think info at defensive security.org. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not a, not a terribly mean, I am a little mean. My kids say that I'm mean, but. Well, of course they do. You, you, you know, they're your kids. Right. So, um, so moving on to our final story, and this is a big one, actually. Verizon released a new report, and um, not only is it new for 2015, it's actually a new, I think this is an actual new, new report that they have not released before. Um, and they call it their uh, Data Breach Digest. So this is different than their uh, investigation report. It's different than the DBIR. This is right. this is really um, a, a different thing. And we are big fans of the DBIR, by the way. Yes. Incredibly useful and something that we highly recommend. And I will, you know, spoiler warning, say I'm now a big fan of the uh, Data Breach Digest report. <laughs> so, um, so, so just to, for those of you who are familiar with the the DBIR, this is a this is a different animal in that it. Whereas the DBIR, DBIR is really a uh, kind of a meta-analysis of trends and things like that, this is a um, a dissection with a with a, a somewhat detailed example of a number of different common. Uh, I, I would say the mo- what what Verizon considers the most common attack techniques. And and, and so from that perspective, I thought this was really a great thing for the industry because they, like I said, they, uh, they have taken, uh, I think the top 18, uh, I'm trying to find the exact number. I think it's the top 18, uh, attack techniques and they, uh, they came up with examples or so of, uh, allegedly of their, of their firsthand experience. So a little background for those who, who may not know, uh, Verizon, uh, the telco company, also has a very large and well-respected, um, you know, security incident response team. So I was trying to avoid the use, using the word cyber there. Uh, but uh, quoting from the report, that the, the risk team, as they call it, performs cyber investigations for hundreds of commercial enterprises and government agencies annually across the globe. In 2015, uh, they did more than 500 cybersecurity incidents uh, responses occurring in over 40 countries. So uh, they're pretty experienced. And, and, you know, as Jerry was saying, the goal here is they look in aggregate at what are the top scenarios, and then they picked representative scenarios to tell the story of in the report with, with some obfuscation data and some anonymization to make sure that they're not giving away anything. But uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's, you know, as they put it, it's kind of like doing a ride along with their incident response team. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is really valuable both for um, IT security people, but also for just IT people generally to be able to see how, IT is failing at the hands of attackers, and and it, it's not always obvious exactly how that's happening. So I think this is a really good thing for for people to read and take some lessons for. And they they do not only describe the situation, but they they talk about how uh, the organization remediated whatever thing happened, and then what the lessons were. So um, it's 
And of course, recommendations to avoid getting hit by that as well. Right, and and it's eighty four pages, so we're not going to do, you know, justice to to this thing in a in a podcast. So, uh, it is definitely worth your time to read. Uh, but there are some things that I thought we should, you know, we, we can talk about here. Um, some of the some of the most interesting things I I picked out reading through this was that um, in their experience, in Verizon's experience, eighty percent of breaches in some way, shape, or form, involve the use of weak, stolen, default, or easily guessed passwords, uh, which should probably not come as a big surprise. But, you know, it is, um, I guess it's a little more, it's a higher percentage than I was thinking it would be. And so it's a, it's a good opportunity to underscore the importance of, of password hygiene and, you know, things like two-factor authentication. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um you know, one that I, I picked out, uh, quoting uh, early, early in the report, is uh, something pretty interesting to me. Quote, many data breach victims believe they're in isolation, dealing with sophisticated tactics and zero-day malware never seen before. We see otherwise, we being Verizon, not you and me. Continuing, to us, few breaches are unique. In fact, our Varus research indicates that at any given point in time, a small number of breach scenarios compromise the vast majority of incidents we investigate. There is tremendous commonality in real-world cyber attacks. In fact, according to our risk team incident data set over the previous years, just 12 scenarios represent over 60% of our investigations. Now, why I think that's huge is we chase these big nation-state pocket case ideas because they're sexy and cool, but really want to raise the bar what this is telling us is these are the common ways the bad guys are coming after us. Address these first, and you're going to hit a good chunk of the ways you might get breached. Right, right. And and including some nation-state-style attacks, too. Of course. There's nothing that stops a nation-state from using a simpler technique. Right. And vice versa. There's nothing to stop a criminal organization from using a nation-state technique, right? This is this is the problem with the common, you know, I, I think nation-state is a... Is a is a term I'd like to stop using. I think it's a level of sophistication that we should be talking about. Yes, right? agreed. And, and because the implication is that a nation state has the financing focus, f financing focus and uh, discipline to have a much higher level of sophistication in their attack. But as we've seen over and over again, I don't need a really sophisticated attack most of the time. I need an attack just sophisticated enough. Right. So why burn my really awesome zero day if i don't have to yeah. regardless of who i am exactly and, and you know to carry that on like the syrian electronic army is a nation state actor who fishes people i mean literally they, literally they literally send you phishing emails to get your password why because it works because it works and and so that's a nation state attack right in fact that leads into the next quote i pulled out of the report uh, from the report, in our entire corpus of data breaches, we witnessed social tactics being used in around 20% of confirmed data breaches. Right. Which, you know, is huge. And if they look at the frequency uh, over the last couple of years, it's 30% of data breaches use some sort of social tactic. Uh, while there are many tactics that can be unleashed to manipulate people, the top three phishing, 72%, pretexting, 16%, and bribery solicitation, 10%. So again, phishing, incredibly effective. Yeah, and uh, continuing to be, mm -hmm. despite despite our continued training. 
And one other tidbit on that is that, uh, again, quoting from the report, as one would expect, email is a primary means of communication to the target, 72% of the time, followed by in-person deception, 18%, and phone calls, 12%, with a small overlap across the three means of communication. Social act actions are typically part of a blended attack, with malware also present in 85% of data breaches and hacking found in 50% involving the human element. Yep. So they, they that, that dovetails into one of their, uh, the first, the actual first case they have is, describes, uh, you know, hypothetical, well, it's not hypothetical, right, but a, a customer that um, had a director of engineering who apparently wasn't very happy with his job and had been communicating with a, um, with a recruiter, apparently using his work computer. A recruiter via LinkedIn. Via LinkedIn, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, this recruiter, they, the, apparently the recruiter and this person had built a rapport over some time. And uh, this person eventually, uh, the, the en engineering person ended up eventually opening up a document, which, of course, no surprise, had some malware, which, um, which ended up stealing some, uh, some key information and kind of backing up doing the Quentin Tarantino thing, right? The, uh, the, the, the customer had noticed that a, uh, another company in a different country had released a product that physically looked very similar to something that they were either they had just released or were about to release. And it apparently it was some like non-trivial piece of uh, uh, construction equipment. And, and so kind of unlikely to be a coincidence. And um, so, so they, they started this investigation, found out that, yeah, it was this, apparently this person uh, got some malware in their, their system. But the, the attacker, uh, they used, I mean, they basically conned this guy, right? They, they figured out who in the organization probably by looking at LinkedIn, were most, most likely to have access to the plans that they would want. And so then they, they started going after him under the pretext of being a recruiter who had a sweet-looking job for this person. And it wasn't, by the way, the first job description that was sent. The way I read the report, there was multiple interactions before the actual malware was sent. Right, right. So it was definitely a long and... Uh, but, you know, first of all, don't look for another job on your work computer, guys. That, that's just kind of one-on-one stuff. If you're going to get owned at work, don't make it doing something like that. That's... Seriously. <laughs> um, and one of the recommendations that came away with, which is one that I think is, is a pain in the ass, but one we see over and over again as something that's helpful, is the engineers were provide the engineers who work with this, this you know, design data and critical uh, important data now have a dedicated system that they do their engineering work on, which no longer has email or web access. So they've got two boxes, basically. They've got their main box that, you know, they do their actual work on, and they've got this other box that, you know, allows them to do email and, and web and that sort of stuff. And there's so many times that segregation of duties would have saved people's bacon. But it's expensive in time and complexity. Uh, it's annoying to the users because they've got to swap back and forth. Let's say they wanted to email something back and forth uh, after working on it. It's... It's rare that we see that implemented, but man, does it sound like uh, something that would save a lot of people's, uh, save them a lot of heartburn. Or whether they set up like a VDI jump box for getting to critical data. Uh, you know, it's something we should be looking at more, I think. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, until we get, you know, until we get to the point where our workstations are are more intrinsically trustable. Yeah, because that's going to happen. Well, I, I know we're not. We don't seem to seem to be on a trajectory for that to happen. Um, we're going to have to get creative with stuff like that. And you know, this is something, by the way, that I've thought a lot about. And you know, one of the one of the concerns I have with the with the VDI type model is that you really want to to contain that more risky stuff in into a you know off into the corner rather than you know ha- having it potentially pollute your whole your whole computer because you, you know if your if your computer gets a rat and you um, you have to VDI into a system that's you know kind of in a clean room you know the the that rat is is still potentially providing access you know even just through the through that vdi so even if it's well, just uh, screen agreed, captures agreed right? uh, although i would say one of the advantages of vdi is that you can snapshot you know roll back snapshots blow away and rebuild the infrastructure incredibly quickly and on a nightly basis uh, i'm definitely not i mean i'm i'm in, in concept i'm in favor of it yeah. i guess my my point is we really have to think about if we're making the most effective use in in how we are having people interact with it, and and I do think that the solution they had is you know, this company came up with, which was providing the engineering person to or people. I'm assuming that guy didn't keep his job. I don't know. <laughs> uh, didn't really. They didn't cover that part, but um, you know the remaining engineers. Uh, had had multiple computers, and we've talked about this time and time again. You know that makes sense whether it's in the context of this person who's working with blueprints, or in the context of a you know a financial person who's making bank transfers, or it's in the context of your uh, your IT administrators who are performing domain admin activities. You know, and and you can you can find many kinds of use cases like that where you really, really, really want to protect the integrity of that system because it has the ability to to, to really hose you. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, and that, that kind of goes to their next one, which the, the very next case, which was also pretty interesting, uh, phishing, another phishing case. Yeah, what? I got I, I had some interesting thoughts on this too, but please go ahead, lay it out. So it was a... a, a a uh, bank, I believe this person it was a, let's say a bank manager, working at at a um, at a branch office, and this person had the you know he, she I believe was was one of two people at the branch, who had the authority to perform transfers using this uh, particular application, used by the the Federal Reserve or the you know, I, I don't exactly understand all of the puts and takes, but in any event, she had access to make some transfers, um, you know, money transfers to this one application. Um, the, uh, I, I believe it was the Federal Reserve Bank actually detected that um, there were unusually large transfers of money happening or, or attempting to be, uh, you know, transferred. And uh, and notified the bank, and so the the bank ended up not actually losing any money, but kind of working backwards. What they found was that this bank manager had received an email purporting to be from the bank's corporate CIO, 
congratulating her and thanking her for her and her team's, you know, awesome part, you know, uh, participation and assistance with, uh, you know, with the, the, the CIO's programs. And, you know, she was the model or her group was the model of, of how, you know, how, how the, the CIO and the business should be working together and, and just kind of buttering her up. And then there was a link that she clicked, which, of course, installed some malware. Uh, apparently a, a variant of Zeus, in fact. And then the um, the attackers ended up using that to initiate the transfers. And, you know, of course, the CIO was like, I don't even know who this person is. I didn't send her any anything like that. It was interesting, too, that a uh, couple key takeaways I had. Uh, 5.3 million was the requested amount in the total of all the transfers. And if it hadn't been that much, they might have gotten away with it. First off, which is interesting, yes, uh, because it it triggered a volumetric alert at the Fed that it was that big. The other thing uh, that I thought interesting was the reason Verizon got involved is the bank's cyber insurance carrier sent them to Verizon. So yes. it kind of goes back to something we've talked about on some of the other shows of the cyber insurance carrier getting more deeply involved in you know some of the day to day sort of instant response stuff. Um, one quote in here I thought was brilliant and really summed up the problem we're dealing with right now that I wanted to, to call out, which was, quote, threat actors who engage in social engineering attacks do it because they know that the human element is the weakest link in, link in any information security strategy. They often take advantage of their targeted victim's sense of curiosity and psychology in order to gain access to sensitive data. In this particular case, the victim employee was showered with compliments by a company executive and then asked to click an innocent-looking hyperlink. Now, as it turns out, this was obviously, as you could probably guess, a spoofed email uh, that came from the outside, but had all the right look and feel to be believable. And in fact, this particular person who clicked on it never doubted that it was real until much later during the investigation. Right. And the other thing that's interesting is, is I know a number of organizations that have internal sort of attaboy systems that are often done over email and often have a link to a, to a third-party site. That's sort of like a, an e-card, if you will, of so-and-so said you did a good job. Click here to see what they say. And it's promoted within that organization as a way to show uh, appreciation and you know, kind of morale building in the organization. But it's, you know, it, it builds a completely plausible scenario just like this uh, to be exploited. Yeah, and it's probably not all that hard for someone to uh, you know to work to target someone else in the organization to, to to find a template for one of those those notifications yeah and then uh, and then use that uh, to go fish someone else especially in a large organization a lot of times it's an outsourced third party that's doing the sort of appreciation program and I've seen people talk about it on their LinkedIn so you know that organization uses that third party right now you know what template to duplicate right. Uh, and it's a tough one because what are you going to go to senior managers? They shut this down. You're training people to click on things. They're going to go, okay, you're not getting an e-card this week, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's... no turkey for you at <laughs> this right. year. I mean, there's a value to having these sorts of appreciation programs and such in an organization. So it's it's a tough one to just say, just shut it down. Uh, and and one of the recommendations that. Verizon mentions, and it's something that we hear over and over and over and over and over and over about phishing is uh, employees need to be constantly sensitized and trained through security awareness programs to be extra vigilant regarding their actions. Uh, 
But here's the thing. If I'm duplicating a known application look and feel in your environment, how the hell is a user going to detect that? that? You've got to have something yeah. at a technical level to realize that this is a spoofed email coming in from the outside or something. Um, or the other thing is you know, multi-factor authentication uh, so that uh, passwords just can't be captured and reused that easily on, on critical apps, which makes sense to me. But well, it's and, fast, yep. I, I fascinating case. It is, and I think it goes back to the you know the the previous point that you know you if if you have people making five point three million dollar transactions, you, they should probably not be doing that on the same computer that they're checking their email and LinkedIn and whatnot. Uh, and, and I know that that's a painful thing to say, but you know, this is becoming a real problem. And, you know, how many times do you have to lose five million bucks for it to become worthwhile? At least three or four. Yeah, true. I mean. So the you know, they, they go on to describe a bunch of other scenarios. The next one was related to extortion where um, an attacker basically said, hey, I have uh, I have all, you know, have have a ton of uh, of your customer transaction data and they the customer really or the um, the vendor had no real conception of how that could have happened turned out it was uh, that the attacker had uh, used a um, a direct object reference vulnerability in their their web application to uh, to get the uh, you know, basically like the receipt of uh, orders and, and over the course of a couple of weeks had downloaded like some, something like a million and a half uh, customer order records. So, um, and then uh, in that particular case, the customer uh, chose to uh, to go forward preemptively because the the, the attacker was trying to, uh, ex you know, like I said, perform some extortion, saying, you know, I will, uh, you know, for the low low price of, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, I will not release this this data. So the the company figured out how how they got the data. Uh, they went public to the to their customers and and whoever else and said, hey, this this is what happened, and then they shut off their their system and rebuilt it from the ground up. So um, interesting, you know, it's something to think about too. You know, how, are you generally going to be opposed to paying ransoms? Good thing to figure out. One thing that it, the takeaway I had there that I liked a lot was, uh, sorry, let me find my notes real quick here. Uh, um, Ah, unprepared, unprepared. <laughs> they had a really good, uh, uh, really good thing about this. But basically, that they pulled in a multi yeah. team, including the, their legal, their their right. marketing. Yeah, the victim uh, incorporated non-technical business units, for example, public relations, legal, etc., to its overall response there you go. to the incident and disclosed the data breach in, on its own terms. In the end, the victim took complete ownership of his data breach experience and used it as an opportunity to come out stronger and more secure on the other side. So, um, Did you want to talk about uh, Bob the Outsourcer? <laughs> uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, my, you know our, our friend Bob, back right. when Bob was still talking to me. He'll be, you know, it'll be okay. He, He'll He'll get over it. He described a very similar situation to this that that actually happened to him. Um, but anyhow, so yes, they they have a little they have a little inset that describes um, Bob the force multiplier. And so, uh, 
so this this particular organization apparently um you know was an in-person primarily an you know a on-site uh organization but they had had started allowing their some of their employees to work at home occasionally uh in, in particular their application developers and so uh, coincidentally the IT team has started looking at their VPN concentrator logs and lo and behold, they find out that one of the accounts is logging in from Asia. Well, and, you know, clearly two factor authentication would solve that. Yes, it, it certainly would. Right. But, and they did in fact have two factor authentication. Well, now I'm puzzled. Yes. And so, so, uh, so as they describe it, the the person who whose ID or you know, whose a VPN account was logged in at the time was actually on site at his desk. Well, now it's just a straight up mystery. So the log show him logging in from China during the workday with a rotating key fob token, probably like an RSA or something similar, and yet he's there. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Plot thickens. It does. So. Uh, so in, and by the way, Bob, you know this person named Bob, right? He uh, he apparently was a highly productive developer. He got very good reviews. He it was claimed that he was the most productive, um, the most productive developer in the whole building. They said uh, he was earning several hundred thousand dollars a year. Yes, and his reviews for the past several years in a row. Uh, received excellent marks. His code was clean and well-written and submitted in a timely fashion. Yes. And uh, as it turns out, Bob had outsourced his job to China. So so basically, uh, uh, Verizon apparently took a forensic image of this person's computer and found out that um, on an average day, he would surf for a few hours in the morning on Reddit he would uh, take an early lunch. He would do some eBay stuff after lunch. He would then move on to Facebook and LinkedIn. He would um, end his day with a summary email to management, I guess describing what the people in China had accomplished. And then he would go home. So from the article, it looks like he just FedExed his token to Asia, paid this third-party contractor 50K a year, and uh, I think he's onto something, actually. And, and I think I think he's a hell of a project manager, if you ask me. Uh, you know, he's certainly enterprising. There's no, <laughs> but but you know, it gets better because apparently, this was not the only job uh, he had at the same time. So uh, uh, apparently, he and it's not exactly enumerated here, but a, there's an allegation that he had at least a couple of other jobs working at the same time. Who were who, where this company in China was uh, was you know, facilitating the work. So he was basically the, in aggregate, right, or net net was he was taking a very small, relatively small portion of his paycheck and paying this development company in China to do his work. And so, somebody read the four hour work week, if you ask me. <laughs> that's right. So uh, so yeah, that's um, you know. Watch out for that stuff. <laughs> well, you know what it does, though, is is it, it, all joking aside, let's take a step back and look at this. There was an assumption that two-factor authentication absolved most of the password reuse problems coming in over the VPN. 
And so here's a brilliant example of what assumptions are we taking into our environment of where our risks and our threats are coming from? Yeah. Now, in all honesty, probably, you know, this, this third party in China was doing good work and they weren't maybe necessarily a risk, but still, this was not sanctioned by management and, and you know, still. So, you know, looking at your logs, examining for odd things is, is always key. Uh, but a challenge of that is having people with enough time to go do that. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if you if if, if you do ever really get comfortable with two-factor, uh, I invite you to go to images.google.com and search for a two-factor webcam. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's very enlightening. Most uh, of it will not be porn. I'll just tell it. That's just warning. Most will not be porn. In case some you... of it, some of it will be, but of course, I mean, the first few hits are are pretty funny though. Yes. Just just pay attention to the first hit, and you'll be fine. Uh, let's see. So moving on, there was another case uh, related to insider threats where a, uh, a an employee, middle, um, I guess a mid-level manager, had been bragging about having access to the CEO's email. And it was a, it was kind of a contentious time because they were going through some, some business changes, and, uh, and I think they were going through an acquisition. And they were trying to, to get people to uh, you know stay on with um, you know, retention packages and, and things like that. So uh, those are always very difficult for times for for employees. But um, not in, not really clear exactly how that played into the scenario here. But basically, what ended up happening was uh, this company brought in uh, Verizon to do an analysis. And it, you know, if they basically they looked at the CEO's computer and they looked at this person's computer and they didn't really they couldn't figure out and they looked at the the email server and they couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. Turns out that uh, the company had a uh, anti-spam you know, spam filter server, which had the ability to uh, to to log all incoming and outgoing emails, and that of course was turned on, and the um, the uh, the IT administrator, one of the IT administrators who had access to that system was personal friends with this mid-level manager and had given that mid-level manager his ID and password to use. And so, you know, the forensic analysis basically found out, found all of this out and, you know, both the IT person and the mid-level manager were thrown out on their keisters. Uh, but, you know, I think that the point there is, number one, you know, collusion and two-factor authentication may have helped, although it won't help the webcam effect or or the emailing it to, or mailing it to China uh, type thing. But you know, that's uh, you have to. I think you really have to look for boy, especially in times of uh, times of corporate strife like that. You've really got to watch how people are, are reacting, right? And then again, there's not a lot of indications. I have had some personal experience with these, these, these sorts of things. And unfortunately, the people who you trust most in, in your IT organization, sometimes, you know, they're people too, right? And, you know, you, you really have to consider that those people also can be either, you know, intentional or unintentional threat actors. So. It's true. 
Uh, let's see, what other fun things did they have to say? Uh, there was a, a partner, they described a, a business partner of a gas station, a franchise of gas stations, who uh, uh, who had who had outsourced support of their point of sale systems to a company and they kept you know they they kept getting uh um the credit cards compromised and couldn't quite figure out what was going on all you know there there really was no clear indication what was going on there was no skimmers there was no evidence of unauthorized access turns out that uh, one of the employees of the the firm that they've outsourced the management of the point of sale terminals was at, in the middle of the night logging in and collecting card data and doing it in a very roundabout way. I mean, like resetting the date and time on the system. and Yeah, to like two years ahead to somehow yeah. avoid logging. Right. Ineffectively, by the way, ineffectively. <laughs> very ineffectively. And, uh, and you know, he, was, he, was, he would go in in the middle of the night to, to his company, the, outsource, the outsourcer, uh, and, and would actually log into his manager's computer instead of his own computer and, and was performing the, the nefarious activity. Uh, but anyway, that, that was an interesting one. Um, they describe a, they, they have some uh, discussion about USB, USB attacks. And, you know, I, I guess I had kind of thought that USB attacks were kind of passe, but they point out that no, they're still alive and well as long as they're messaged properly. So they talk about a case of a of a, uh, a motion picture executive getting um, socially socially engineered to running some application on a USB drive, you know, and, and it came with a letterhead and it was purported to be a press kit for an upcoming movie, and so uh, interesting stuff there. Um, a uh, couple of things on that I want to yeah, point Yeah, go out. ahead. Um, two, three, really. One, the press kit looked just like another press kit from the industry. So clearly somebody did their their homework. Um, two, when they when the guy first put the USB in and looked at the movie trailer, that's when it dropped the malware. And the malware did a call out to a CNC box. Their proxy dropped it and locked it. Right. But the connection alert. Uh, was one of many alerts that were forwarded to a security analyst every day. Since it was blocked access to a blacklisted IP, the analyst didn't chalk it up as a success and moved on. This is a common, common, common problem. I don't know how to solve it, but it is a big deal. This is something where we've seen this over and over again. In hindsight, it's perfectly obvious, but in the moment, you get some random alert that is a little tiny piece of data that may mean a lot more than it seems like. Well, I mean, this this is the signal and the noise problem. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, um, and I don't know how to deal with that because we don't have the people to go chase all this stuff down. We really don't. And so it's an interesting thing to think about, though. The third one that I thought was really interesting from this particular case study, and I know we're getting long on, on the hour here, but, um, quote, some people may believe that they're safe from USB flash drives attacks because their DLP software blocks said devices as is, you know, perhaps their, their various uh, settings on the computer or whatever. However, unfortunately, DLP and other devices, I'm inserting the and other devices and other techniques, can't block all USB devices without making systems unusable. For example, a USB device claiming to be a keyboard human interface device can bypass DLP and type, quote-unquote, scripted keystrokes at 1,000 words per minute. 
it acts just like a keyboard and basically gives keyboard access to the threat actor. So with easy-to-use tools to load custom payloads on the device, anything is possible. So for you sitting there all smug, fat, dumb, and happy thinking, that's all right, we've turned off USB file permissions. Guess what, kids? USB is universal. So here's a great example of all they have to do is masquerade like a keyboard, and because keyboards plug into USB, you're good to go. Yeah, there's <clears throat> there's been a lot of attacks using USBs in, in non-conventional ways. I mean, there's there's... I can't remember the name of it right now, but there was a big flap about uh, using embedded microcontrollers to emulate just that, right? So you can actually make it in the form factor of a USB storage device. But just like you said, you know, it has a little radio and and it it emulates the HID, right? You know, the human interface, um, mouse and and, um, uh, keyboard, which is not not a great thing. The The other common one, and I, I, it depends on how you configure your DLP and, and operating system, whether or not this will be effective. But there's a lot of instructions for certain kinds of USB devices. You can actually reprogram them to present themselves as uh, CD-ROM drives. Sure. So the operating system thinks that it's actually a CD-ROM drive instead of a, a flash drive. So, um, you know, there's lots of lots of creative ways. Don't get too comfortable um, certainly, you know, as with everything, you're probably not going to get, you're, you're probably unlikely to get the most sophisticated attacker coming after you, but, you know, you, you don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that you're completely solid because you've disabled mass storage USB devices. Um, boy, there was, there's a lot of other good ones. I'm trying to think of what other, um, just looking through the list here. I think the takeaway is everybody should go read it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, don't leave your AS400 sitting out open, wide open on the internet with credentials to log in hidden in an INI file on one of your websites. That's a good one. Crazy talk. Um, let's see. Your you know content management systems are are going to be compromised. Uh, rats are bad. DNS tunneling is hard to track down. Uh, ransomware is a problem, and sophisticated malware. Uh, can uh, can be really hard to track down, and um, yeah, that's it's really a great report. Highly recommend you read it. Think about how you know what how you might integrate the lessons into your own program. That's if nothing else, by the way. That's what I want out of this podcast is for people to be able to look at you know the average story like this and think critically about it. What does this mean to me? Does this tell me anything new? So, indeed, and you know, here's the thing I'll I'll say too is that it's really easy for folks like us and folks like Verizon to say, "Here's what you need to do." Actually, executing it in your organization is is sometimes incredibly difficult, uh, but don't give up. You know, it sometimes it takes a lot of communication and a lot of tactful pressure and uh, you know, gentle persuasion to affect change. But it's it's on us to affect that change. Yeah, and. It, it, I think the bigger thing too is just being exposed to the ways this stuff is happening so that you're not caught by surprise. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of value in that. So anyway, that is the show for this week. We appreciate everyone's time. Uh, hopefully you, you uh, find this useful. And if you do, by the way, you know, give us some love on iTunes. We, we really enjoy that. Tell a friend. Love that too. Uh, Thank you for listening again, and we will talk again next week. 
just a reminder, you can find links to the stories we talked about tonight on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at Malicious Lincoln. With that, we'll talk again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There's two types of people in this world. <laughs> those who think we're funny and those who are wrong? Yes. You got it. Well, I'm sure there'll be some big data and some threat intelligence. Absolutely. And uh, pro- probably, probably some advanced APT defense tools, I imagine. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.